This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Folks, you know everyone's different. We have different fashion styles. We like different types of food. We have different dreams in life. And that applies to investing as well, because we all have different financial goals and different tolerances for risk. So what if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front? That way, you could try day trading the markets without worrying about the risk. Well, luckily, you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at Nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. On March 27, 2015, Captain Scott Kelly docked at the International Space Station. That trip wasn't his first mission to the ISS, but it would be his longest and most trying assignment, lasting a record-setting 340 days in an environment that is utterly hostile to human life. For NASA, measuring the effects of a long-term space voyage on Scott Kelly's mind and body was an essential stepping stone in the path toward a manned mission to Mars. For Kelly, though, it was a remarkable test of will as he persevered through the devastating physical effects of zero gravity, radiation, and high carbon dioxide levels, the isolation from everyone he loves and the comforts of Earth, the catastrophic risk of colliding with space junk or becoming untethered during a spacewalk, and the still more haunting threat of being unable to help should tragedy strike at home. He's written about his record-breaking voyage in a new book appropriately titled Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. And today, Captain Kelly joins me on the podcast to talk about the experience. He shares how that year in space pushed his body to the limit and why the hardest physical test was coming home. Scott reveals how he combated boredom and homesickness and what he missed most about life on Earth. He discusses the geopolitics of a joint space mission and getting along with his Russian crewmates. He also tells me if a man can ever get tired of looking at the Earth, what space smells like, and the weird things it does to your feet. Coming up with astronaut Captain Scott Kelly in just a moment. Scott Kelly is a former military fighter pilot and test pilot, an engineer, a retired astronaut, and a retired U.S. Navy captain. A veteran of four space flights, Kelly commanded the International Space Station on three separate expeditions, including a year-long mission to the space station. Now that he's back on terra firma, Captain Kelly has written a fascinating account of his experience up there, titled Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, I really enjoyed the book, and I have to say I was a little bit surprised to read in it that you originally didn't want to do any missions to the space station because you said, to use your words, you didn't want to get the space station stink on you. Was there a time when the International Space Station was considered a dead end for an astronaut? Well, you know, when I, was, uh, when I became an astronaut, the space station didn't exist. 
and mm-hmm. uh, we were flying the space shuttle. Um, at one point, we started building the space station, and you know, I think a lot of people in the early days, at least of the of the space station, when they got assigned to those flights, they kind of felt like they were missing out on a on a shuttle mission, especially once the retirement date was set. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's it's true what I said, but it, it was also said kind of in jest. Yeah, and one of the key reasons that you were chosen for this mission is, I guess, because you have a twin brother named Mark, who is also an accomplished astronaut. And I guess this would allow NASA to compare the control Kelly on the ground with the uh, experiment Kelly up in the space station. Uh, how was it decided which one of you would actually go up to the space station for a year? So I was assigned to this flight, and then uh, once I was assigned to the mission, um, due to a question that I asked about genetic-based research, I asked if NASA was interested in doing anything like that, really to get me. I was I was getting prepared for a uh, press conference, and uh, you know they initially said no, but would you be interested? So. The scientists went back, talked about it, and decided there was merit in this idea of this genetic-based research. But it was a serendipitous thing. I was assigned to the flight, and then later we started talking about the fact that I have a twin brother who was also an astronaut. Uh, would this be a, a, a good idea as an experiment? Now, my brother had already retired from NASA, so there was no real decision like who would be the control and who would be the you know, the test subject in space. I see. Now, did you ever wish that you were the Kelly who got to stay on Earth and eat Doritos on the couch? <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I didn't wish that. I think I had the, uh, the good, the better job in the, in the yeah. deal. You say in the book that you almost missed out on the mission because I guess NASA had concerns because what you had had prostate surgery and some vision problems on the last mission. Is that well, right? Well, I had uh, in two thousand and seven. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and I had it, you know, my prostate surgically removed. And after that, um, with the help of the flight surgeons at NASA, specifically my my flight surgeon, uh, Dr. Steve Gilmore, but other people helped as well, I was able to get re-qualified for space flight and flew 500 days in space after I had cancer. Now, the whole purpose of this mission was to test the long-term effects of space on the mind and body. Even with all of our technology, space is an extremely hostile environment for the human body. Does it take a special kind of masochism to want to take a mission like this on? In our office, in the astronaut office, there are a lot of people that would have done this flight and Mm -hmm. could have done it. So I don't think I'm any more special than any of my colleagues uh, for doing this. More, it's I feel privileged to have had the opportunity. Like you said, space is a harsh environment. We get a lot of radiation in space. The microgravity environment itself has other negative effects. So, um, yeah, it is it is a, a difficult, uh, challenging place to live physically and mentally, but a lot of people could do it. One of the more interesting chapters in this book is actually before you even get up there, you talk a lot about uh, Star City in Kazakhstan, which is the Russian equivalent of Cape Canaveral, because we retired the space shuttle, so all of our astronauts have to hitch a ride up to the International Space Station with the Russians. Now, the Russian cosmonauts have all kinds of funny superstitions and rituals before launch. 
I was amused particularly by this strange tradition where the Russian cosmonauts apparently stop on their way to the launch pad and urinate on the back tire of the bus, even the female astronauts. Did you ever get an explanation of the origins of that tradition? Yeah, yeah. So we all do that, and it's because on the first flight of a human in space, Yuri Gagarin needed to use the restroom, (laughs) and there wasn't one available on the way to the rocket, so they stopped the bus, and he got out and opened up his spacesuit and used the bus's (laughs) tire as a tree. So we do that now on every single flight from uh, from Baikonur. They also, I guess, plant a tree for every cosmonaut that's gone up at Star City. Do you have a tree as well, or is that just for the Russians? No, they do that for Americans. Um, yeah. I hope my tree is is still alive. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of small the last time I saw it. <laughs> Well, it doesn't take very long to get up into space, but apparently docking at the space station is a whole other story. Is that one of the hardest parts? In the uh, in the space shuttle, it's a it's a complicated piloting mm-hmm. task. A lot of it's done manually by the shuttle commander. The Soyuz is generally automated, but uh, oh, really? you know, at times they uh, they take over the cosmonaut, uh, who's the Soyuz commander, will take over manually and, and dock the. The Soyuz manually. So once you board the space station, what's the hardest thing to get used to physically in space? I mean, obviously gravity, but what else? Well, the lack of gravity uh, makes most things harder to do, mm-hmm. except, you know, moving around heavy objects because they don't have weight. They still have mass. But, uh, yeah, most stuff is harder to do. And also because of the absence of gravity, you have the fluid in your body shifts upwards towards your head, which makes for an uncomfortable feeling for, mm-hmm. you know, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, pretty lengthy time, actually. Yeah, you said that due to the high carbon dioxide levels, I guess you had headaches, congestion, nausea, that type of thing. Uh, never nausea, but oh, no. uh, headaches. Rashes. Yeah, headaches, mm-hmm. congestion, eyes irritating, when the CO2 would get on the high side. Mm-hmm. Not not all the time, but, uh, you know, at times it's it's elevated and it's not a pleasant feeling. Is sleep deprivation a big problem too? You know, some people have uh, challenges sleeping in space. You know, our whole lives we slept on, on a bed, hopefully, you know, in between the comfortable sheets with a pillow to put your head on. And, uh, you know, when you no longer have that, it makes challenging uh, – it's like new challenges, sleeping, not having that kind of pressure and the yeah. fact that you're floating. But but you don't have to worry. I guess you're, you're cocooned from the sun, though, so you don't have to worry about the sun coming up 16 times a day, do you? No, um, yeah. not in the uh, U.S. sleeping quarters. The Russians, though, they have two sleeping quarters that actually have windows in them. <laughs> now, I would imagine when they're sleeping, they have them covered up. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between the American quarters and the Russian quarters? The U.S. ones are quieter. They're a little bigger. Okay. Um, the, having said that, though, the Russians, they have a window. Yeah. You know, we don't have a window. <laughs> I think their ventilation is a little bit better. But, really? Uh, yeah. Huh. And there's, they have a big vent on the ceiling that's more like a 
a giant uh, faucet that yeah. just blows air down on you. <laughs> I think of Russia. I think of you know tanks, you know, just rotting away in in a yard somewhere and that type of thing. I don't think of them as having better technology than us usually. Oh, I didn't say it was better. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you did say that. I guess the Russian had a window and a fan. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> uh, you did say yeah. that the Russian cosmonauts also. I guess their spacesuits are. are pretty much held together with rubber bands or something or they're, oh they're, well it's we wear the same spacesuit you know okay. we wear that that spacesuit as well and yeah it's uh they do seal it with with rubber bands which is a, a statement on their you know practicality in mm-hmm. doing things so yeah you know at times maybe not as uh, you know technically advanced as you may think but mm-hmm. certainly but it uh, does the job certainly practical <laughs> From a psychological standpoint, there's no such thing as out of sight, out of mind when you're on the space station because, you know, the Earth containing everyone you love is right there every single day, really not that far. I mean, shorter than driving distance between L.A. and Vegas, and yet you're worlds apart. That must lead to a especially torturous brand of homesickness, I guess. Yeah, you are. Uh, you know, you're close in miles. You know, the space station is only about 250 miles above the surface. But from a, um, you know, conceptually, you feel much further away because mm-hmm. you do understand you're going really, really fast, 17,500 miles an hour. And getting back to the, uh, back to Earth is not only uh, a risky proposition, but it's also, uh, you know, very lengthy and complicated. And it's not like you can come home whenever you want. So having the Earth there with uh, everyone on it, all seven and a half billion of us. Does uh, you know? Does give you a feeling of uh, detachment from the planet? It must seem to some extent like kind of life goes on on Earth. And do you did you feel like you were getting left behind at times? You know, we we have uh, the ability to stay connected to the planet mm-hmm. pretty well with email and phone calls. Um, we have a phone we can use basically. You know, anytime we have a connection, which is about you know forty five minutes to, of every hour. We have the ability to do video conferences. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I would never say, you know, I, f- I really felt like, you know, life was continuing on Earth without me. No, I, I never yeah. felt that way. I felt, you know, fairly connected to my friends and family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, you are detached from a planet that has uh, mostly bad news emanating from it. <laughs> I guess you don't have too much distraction. It's not like you can go out and have a beer or anything. Did you ever feel kind of the opposite of that, like you were bugging people on Earth too much, your relatives? The only time I ever felt that way was, was uh, you know, after my sister-in-law was shot mm-hmm. and I, Gabby, uh, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords right. was shot, and I spent a lot of time trying to support my brother and call him and see how he was doing. And I think after a few weeks, I felt like maybe it was more he was supporting me (laughs) in space than I was supporting him. So I kind (laughs) of laid off a little bit. You know, speaking of homesickness, do you miss just the simple things like the basic physics of Earth life? You know, being able to sit down, being able to not have your dinner floating away? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I miss... uh, Missed sitting at a table with uh, utensils and uh, gravity assisting in uh, in the whole activity more than I did miss any kind of particular food, mm-hmm. as an example. So really, yeah, you do uh, you do miss uh, earthly uh, things like that, like <laughs> eating at a table. Yeah, and when you're going through all that, 
did you ever feel, I guess, like maybe the guys on the ground at Mission Control didn't have your back or like they didn't have quite enough empathy for all that you were going through for them? Well, you know, first of all, it's a it's a pretty hardcore place, right? Yeah. You're uh, in this risky environment with radiation and microgravity causes some negative effects on our our physiology. There's, like you mentioned earlier, the uh, carbon dioxide that sometimes gets high. You know, I think it's kind of human nature in difficult situations to sometimes feel sorry for yourself and, you know, try to blame, um, you know, whether it's a uh, organization or people or whatever. And, you know, there were times I felt like, um, you know, maybe the the ground wasn't really listening to me as much as they should yeah. have with things like the carbon dioxide. But, you know, in, in hindsight and when you go back and, you know, consider – um, the challenges that, that they have, you know, they, they don't only have to worry about the guys on the space station. Now they have to worry about this program over the course of years. Mm -hmm. So there are, uh, you know, complexities and challenges that are a result of, you know, having to maintain this hardware operating for longer periods of time than I would even seem, uh, that I would even consider or think that's that's important to me. During your year in space, at any point did you use the phrase, well, why don't you guys come up here and do this? No, I never. <laughs> no? I never said that. Okay. And I always felt like it was a privilege to be there. So, yeah. you know, on one hand, you know, you know, it might not feel good on certain days. Uh, on the other, it's it was a privilege. And I tell those stories not to point fingers at people, but I just wanted this book to be something that, one, when someone read it, they could say, wow, you know, I really felt like I was in space with him. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I understand the program better, the challenges, the goods and the others. You know, not everything's always great. And I think to have a balanced uh, story, you have to touch on, you know, all aspects of it. And among the hard times that you had to deal with, at one point, I think three resupply missions got canceled, including two vessels that exploded were you at any point getting concerned that your resources on board were starting to dwindle? Yeah, so when we got up there, we had lost one previous to our launch uh, in the year prior. So that was that the was first the failure. That was the SpaceX one? That was or the no? orbital uh, oh, okay. that failed right after liftoff. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had SpaceX, and we also had a Russian uh, progress resupply craft that both of those didn't make it while we were on board. While I was there with, uh, you know, my astronaut colleagues and we were starting to get concerned about supplies. Uh, had we lost the next resupply spacecraft, we would have been in some mm -hmm. more serious issues. But fortunately, it made it and we were OK. OK. So you had stockpiles to, to hold you through it, huh? Yeah. And NASA plans for that. I mean, that's part of our, our, our planning process is to plan for failure and then have, uh, you know, redundancy to, to, to carry us forward. What about the dynamic among your crewmates? Do you have the typical roommate problems like someone eating your food or not doing their share of the chores? You can. I mean, I was lucky in that my, um, you know, my fellow crew members on all my flights, I always got along with great, you know, very professional and, uh, and great people and really a privilege to fly with them. But, you know, at times when you're in any kind of closed environment with people, you know, I'm sure I irritated my fellow crew members as well. So there are those kind of things that happen. But, uh, you know, we, we figure out how to move past them and 
Well, because you're also dependent on each other. Oh, absolutely. You, you talk about having to cut each other's hair, and apparently yeah. even you did dental work on each other? Yeah, I never, I've never cut hair in space because, you know, I don't need mine cut, so. Right, right. There's I, no reciprocity. Yeah. <laughs> that would but, be a real crappy job to have to give haircuts when you don't have hair. Yeah. What kind of dentistry did you do? And one of my, like, fellow crewmates, one of his teeth fell out, so we had to glue it back in onto a post. <laughs> when you're sharing close quarters with the Russian counterparts at a time when the U.S.-Russian relationship was particularly tense, did you guys ever talk about politics, or did events between Obama and Putin ever create friction? Never friction. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, we would talk about our country's relationships, but in this kind of a detached way, almost like you know, the the American astronauts and the cosmonauts were talking about the relationship between, you know, China and France. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't really have a personal uh, stake in this conversation. Um, And we wouldn't really dwell on it for a long period of time because what's important to us is our ability to work together, our our cooperation, our ability to take care of one one another, our ability Mm -hmm. to... uh, you know, we're 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 putting our lives in in our own hands in space, and that was much more than any any yeah. politics. I read that you do have concerns that Putin could retaliate for U.S. sanctions by cutting off NASA's access to the Russian space program. If he did that, I suppose it would sort of be like holding the space station hostage because we have no way of getting up there right now, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there is that concern. Um, do I think it'll happen? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the Russian space agency also relies on NASA for a lot of a lot of things. We uh, provide their uh, segment of the space station with electricity, for example. We okay. have a lot more ability to produce power. So where they, you know, provide transportation services at a cost, we also provide uh, certain things that to the space station that they cannot. I don't know if this is something that you can talk about, but. I wonder, are there classified projects that the Russians and Americans work on separately on the space station? And do you maybe have to worry about crewmate espionage, if so? (laughs) Well, I can only speak for NASA, and (laughs) I've never worked on a classified project on the space station. And I would have to refer you to the the Russian (laughs) space agency for the second part of that question. Because if it was classified, by definition, I wouldn't know about it. (laughs) I wouldn't even know about it because it would be their classification. Yeah. Now, how many hours of spacewalk did you do and and what was that like? Yeah, I went outside three times, I think, Mm -hmm. for, you know, probably about 20 hours worth. Um, It's type two kind of fun. Type one kind of fun is the roller coaster when you're doing it and you're like, (laughs) wee, this is fun. Type two fun is it's fun when it's done. You know, yeah. it's kind of hard. <laughs> you live to tell the story. Yeah, exacting, challenging work, and you, you know, you might not be the uh, happiest while you're doing it, but when you're done, you're like, mm. man, that was awesome. <laughs> Is there a very real fear of getting untethered and floating off to space when you're doing that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it would not be a good day if you floated away. Uh, in the U.S. spacesuits, we have a jet pack you can fly okay. yourself back. I wouldn't want to try it, um, depending on how quickly and how f- fast you're moving away. It can be a challenge even in training to get back. But, yeah, we're we're concerned with us floating away with our tools, 
or the hardware you're mm-hmm. working on. So everything always has to be tethered and it's very yeah. uh, exacting. Yeah, you don't want to create any more space debris. No. We have enough already. Is that a big concern when you're up there? There's a lot of getting hit with space debris. The space station. station. Yeah, the space station gets hit all the time. Really? Um, You know, fortunately, we have good uh, debris shielding, so we've never had anything penetrate the hull, Mm -hmm. but it's possible. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Captain Scott Kelly when we come back in just a moment. Folks, the most successful business owners I know are people who enjoy what they're doing. Whatever their thing is, they love it. But here's what they don't love, when they have to stop doing what makes them money to handle something that doesn't, especially when it comes to email. And that's one reason AppRiver shines. AppRiver keeps your inbox free from spam and viruses, so you don't have to worry about all that junk cluttering up your day. If you're running your own email servers, protect them with AppRiver. And if you're tired of that headache, just sign up for Hosted Exchange or Office 365 and get your email from the cloud. Here's the best part. Call AppRiver anytime, night or day, and you'll talk to a real, live, U.S.-based company employee. Somebody who's trained to take care of your issue and lets you get back to doing what you love. Visit appriver.com slash kick and try any of their services free for 30 days. That's appriver.com slash kick. We're also sponsored by Sonos. You know, I've heard people saying for months now that the next big thing in tech is going to be smart speakers. That's the future, they all say. And I'll admit that I was not an early adopter. I was happy just listening to tunes off of my iPhone or on some dinky little speaker I got in the mall. But man, oh man, oh man, was I wrong. I tried out the Sonos Play 5 speaker at home, and that little guy blew my mind. I forgot what it was like to have sound that really, truly fills the room. My living room is like Carnegie Hall now. Now, I'm kind of old school, so I love the great American classics like Dino, Frank Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, Ella. And let me tell you, that gang never sounded so good. Sonos intuitively synced up all my music apps, plus they've even introduced me to new music services I didn't even know about. Look, I'm not a techie. I'm terrible about reading instructions and figuring out what wire goes where, which is why having a smart speaker that truly lives up to that description is such a big deal to me. The Sonos speaker actually reads the room and fine-tunes its acoustics accordingly. Plus, it uses Wi-Fi, not Bluetooth, so you don't suddenly lose your music every time you leave the room. In fact, I was so impressed with my Sonos Play 5 that I got a Sonos Play 1 for my office so I can enjoy great tunes and great sound while I work. These guys at Sonos have really got it down to a science. They let you have pulse-pounding sound in any room or every room at once. Play a different song in the living room, bedroom, even the bathroom, or the same track in every room. You can add your existing music services or discover something new. Whether curated or on demand, free or subscription-based, Sonos has you covered with access to a growing list of music services. And Sonos's simple app lets you control everything from songs to volume to rooms all in one place. Sonos brings all your music together. To find out more, visit Sonos.com. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S dot com. And now, back to the podcast. How do you combat space boredom? Do you uh, just fill all your hours with work, or how do you pass the time? 
Mostly with work. I mean, mm. we uh, our work day during the week is well over 12 hours. Wow. Um, we do a lot of exercise. You have to exercise a lot in space or you lose bone and muscle mass. Yeah. But also you find other things to do. I mean, I in, in your spare time, I uh, took a lot of notes because I thought I might want to write a book someday. So I kept a journal uh, of the experience. I uh, You read a little. You watch movies or TV shows. I... I saved Game of Thrones to binge watch in space. <laughs> How about video games? Do they have video games on the ISS? You know, we do on the laptops. I think you can get them, yeah. but I've never played <laughs> one or seen anyone playing yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, you're basically living one. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you also say that you brought along Ernest Shackleton's biography, and you even named your own biography after his ship, The Endurance. Of all the explorers, why do you feel a particular kinship to Shackleton? Well, I just think he was a great leader, mm -hmm. and um, what him and his crew were able to accomplish uh, in the Antarctic being, you know, marooned and survive well over a year and not lose one person, mm -hmm. no, no one died, is really a, a testament for, you know, Shackleton's leadership and the crew's ability to survive in some incredible circumstances. You also took a bunch of pictures while you were up there, and I think you're going to follow up this book with a book of your photographs from space. What was your favorite view of the Earth? I think one of the most beautiful views is of the blue waters of the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. um, it's so expansive and blue that it's hard to, you could never confuse it for anything else. Um, but there are other beautiful spots on Earth as well. Other uh, tropical waters, deserts are incredibly beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that the places where um, people generally don't live in water or in the desert is the places that are most uh, appealing looking from space. Huh. Um, the you know, the uh, forests don't really transmit well through the atmosphere. They don't look oh, yeah. as as brilliant as those other places. Could you see evidence of man-made pollution from up there? Absolutely. Really? Uh, yeah, certain parts of Asia, India, um, eastern uh, China, almost always covered in pollution. Wow. Astronauts always talk about this feeling of euphoria that you get when you look down at the Earth, but does the overview effect start to wear off after 341 days of looking at it? Um. So, yeah, this uh, some people have termed this as an overview effect or mm -hmm. the orbital perspective, yeah. this idea that when you're detached from Earth and you're looking out at its beauty and you're considering that, uh, you know, everyone who's lived and died is, is basically down there, um, you know, it makes you, I think, more of a empathetic person. So what I would say is as the longer I stayed in space, the more of that kind of feeling I had. Really? Yeah, that orbital perspective, this change in your your feelings towards uh, you know humanity, I guess would be a good way to put it. But on the other hand, looking at the Earth for a long time, mm -hmm. even though you appreciate its beauty, you do sometimes kind of get used to the view a little bit. Yeah, you think you may not, but I I kind of did after a while. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. you get used to anything. At a yeah. certain point, you're like, oh, I'll look at Facebook instead. Yeah, something. let me take Mona Lisa off the wall and I'll put something yeah. else up here. <laughs> exactly. Well, when you came back, I wonder, was it harder adjusting to life in space or readjusting to life on Earth? 
I think readjusting to life on Earth. You know, really? living yeah, living without gravity for that long uh, made coming back to gravity I think more challenging than the uh, the transition the other direction. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it must be like uh, like physical therapy probably. Almost. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you have. Um, you know, physical reconditioning, which mm -hmm. in a lot of ways is like uh, physical therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you open the book by recounting, I guess, I think it's your first night at home when your ankles start swelling up and you have a rash, you're nauseous, and that has to be particularly scary because no one has experience with this. You can't just walk into an emergency room. Yeah. Well, you know, we also have good medical care, but the yeah. fact that, you know, I knew why I was feeling this way meant that, you know, I didn't need to go to mm -hmm. a hospital. I would just talk up to my NASA physician about it in the morning. But if I would have felt these symptoms and had not been flying in space previously, yeah, I absolutely yeah. would have went to the emergency room and said, I don't know what's wrong with me. But Are there still any things that trouble you a year or so later? Nothing, uh, you know, physical symptoms. Yeah. You know, I, I would imagine... Um, based on my previous experience that I still have structural changes in my eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's probably genetic damage from radiation, which huh. we all get all the time. Our body generally does a good a good job at repairing yeah. that damage. So, you know, hopefully it won't have any long-term implications, but we do get a lot of radiation in mm -hmm. space. When you say structural damage to your eyes, what do you mean? Um, swelling kind of, of the optic nerve, oh, wow. uh, something called choroidal folds, which mm -hmm. are folds in the like fleshy material that's uh, part of our retina. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I hope it was worth it. <laughs> what what kind of things did we learn from this experiment? Well, you know, the, there's, there's all kinds of experiments we do on the space station. While I was right, yeah, right in the moment, yeah. So there there was like 400 different experiments while mm -hmm. I was on on the space station, and some of those. Involved me as a human subject compared, you know, Misha and I compared to other, you know, astronauts, but we've been in space for longer, my mm -hmm. brother compared to me. And some of those results are available. Um, there's one about our telomeres, my. Oh, really? Which are. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, these parts of our chromosomes. Yeah. Uh, they're part of what keeps us, you know, gives us shorter or longer lives, they say now. Yes. Yeah. So what happened to your telomeres after that? So, yeah. So as we age, as we get physically older, our telomeres get shortened in length mm -hmm. and they get more frayed. The hypotheses would be was that, you know, me in space, radiation environment, stressful environment, everything yeah. that goes with that Makes sense. would cause my telomeres to get shorter compared to my brother's mm -hmm. on Earth or compared to mine on Earth, for that matter, from when I launched. The reality of it was they actually got better. Really? Which was surprising. Did they have any idea why? Who knows? Maybe it was a clean living or something up there and all, <laughs> all the exercise. Yeah. Speaking of clean living, I assume that that's a pretty sterile environment. Does it take a hit to your immune system when you come back down to earth and are exposed to pollen and that sort of thing and germs and whatnot? Dander? Yeah. You know, I think that's part of your, you know, not feeling good when you get back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe some of the nausea. I kind of felt like I sort of had like flu-like symptoms, you know, oh, of the first few nights really? back. So I think that's probably your immune system reacting to something in Earth's environment that you didn't have, whether it's germs that are new to you or something else. Who oh. knows? Are there things 
that were accomplished or learned during that year, particularly with the experiments on you and your body that have direct applications to getting us to Mars? Well, that's the idea. And, yeah. uh, and I would imagine so. Um, we have this issue with our vision that is potentially a problem. You know, you mm. don't want astronauts going on a long mission and having blind spots when they arrive yeah. on, you know, wherever they're going. So, you know, I hope some of those results and some of the other experiments will help mm-hmm. future uh, long-duration space travelers. But the way science works is, you know, it's a long process. I think they're still in the in the uh, analyzing the data phase. And generally with, uh, like, human research experiments that NASA does, the results aren't published until years later. Mm-hmm. So I think we're still in the in the early phases of this. Somewhere I read that when we do send people to Mars, you said you bet that it'll be a crew of old people. <laughs> Why is that? Well, away f- when you get out of the magnetic field of the Earth, you get exposed to a lot more radiation. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get a lot of radiation in space now, but away from the Earth, it gets it becomes even a bigger problem. And I was just joking because, you know, if you're older, you can— your radiation limit, this part isn't a joke, your radiation limit is higher the older you get because you have less time to develop a fatal cancer as a result of that radiation. Okay. So, you know, if you're going to get a lot of radiation and you're older, you can, you're better at dealing with it because you don't have as much time for it to become a problem. Yeah. Funding runs out for the space station in 2024. Uh, What do you think should happen to it then? I I hope they extend the the funding to it Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, allow NASA to use it as a uh, a laboratory and a and a place to continue to, to do research until we get to the point where we're going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Whether that's the moon or Mars, um, I don't know what that will be, but I th- do think we need a uh, a destination and 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 goals, and we have to continue to fly people in the space because we don't want to lose that expertise. It's too valuable. And you talk about your youth and how you were inspired by reading the book, uh, The Right Stuff. But you say that you weren't a great student growing up, and yet you went on to accomplish some pretty amazing things. How do we rethink education so that we get kids like a young Scott Kelly interested in STEM subjects to get us to Mars and beyond down the road? So my experience was that it was impossible for me to pay attention growing Mm -hmm. up. And I can remember every year at the beginning of the school year, I would say, okay, this is a year I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to do my homework. And that lasted generally about two or three days. And then it was back to my normal um, uh, state of looking out the window or just looking at the clock, hoping that I could will it to run faster and not being able to pay attention. And I truly felt like it was impossible for me. Like if someone had a, held a gun to my head, I wouldn't have been able to do my homework mm-hmm. or pay attention to what the teacher was saying. And it wasn't until I found something that I really, really wanted to do. I wanted to do it so much, it, it required me to fix that attention problem at least enough to where I could become a better student and learn. And it's, you know, thinking back on it, I'm, I'm, um, I'm kind of surprised really how it worked out because, you know, I read a book. I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. It wasn't the easiest thing. It was probably one of the hardest things I've done is teach myself how to pay attention. You know, I 
came from a pretty significant deficit when when I started college and to just catch up and eventually mm-hmm. become an engineering major. It's it's interesting. I went from, you know, bad student to uh, first guy in my astronaut class, first American in my astronaut class to fly in space. That uh, took me about, uh, let me think, you know, less than 20 years, so about 17 years. Yeah, I guess it's just finding your niche, something that motivates you. Yeah, exactly. A spark, really, is what I needed. So. You know, to answer your question about, you know, helping kids and that might experience uh, the same kind of issues I had, you got to find what what motivates them and what their spark Mm -hmm. is. And it's not just telling them that they have to pay attention because this is important. Uh, What's the thing that surprised you the most about the experience? Um, You know, how long a year is. It's a really (laughs) long time. Um, You know, the whole space station program and NASA has uh, surprised me in, in how, you know, I, I truly believe now that if we have a goal, even if it's a goal we think is impossible, but we work really, really hard at it and we're committed to it and you get the right people involved, that we can solve, you know, our problems, whatever those problems are, because the space station the hardest thing I think we've ever done. And if we can do that, we can do anything. What's one small thing or one overlooked quirk of living on the space station that probably wouldn't occur to most of us here on Earth, but maybe got your attention or maybe even amused you at some point during that year? You know, a lot of people think that um, because you float that you would, you know, move around with your hands and you could go without legs or feet, uh-huh. but actually your feet become very, very important because they hold you in place when you're trying to use your hands. Huh. So to <laughs> keep your okay. body stable, you have to use your, you have to secure it some way and you yeah. do that with your feet. And the longer you're up there, you know, the more comfortable you get at it. And eventually you're just holding yourself in place very subtly with your big toes and maybe just one big toe. And how um, how important that, that toe becomes to you. So much so that you get big callus on the top of it. it kind of On the top? Yeah, it gets pretty nasty. Um, yeah, I think you say the bottom of the feet after that long becomes like a baby's bottom. Baby. It's so soft. Yeah, ba- you get baby feet. No use. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I have a listener, Joe in Chicago, wants to know, what does space smell like? To me, it smells like uh, welding or <laughs> maybe a sparkler on the Fourth of July, kind of like yeah. a burning metal smell. Yeah, it's um, it's sort of an appealing smell. It's <laughs> very distinct. Yeah, um, some people characterize it more as a sweet smell, like some kind of food or something. But mm. I, I think it smells more like burning metal. Uh, how about the noise? Is it noisy on there? Yeah, it's it can be noisy. Really. Um, you know, occasionally I would wear earplugs when I slept just to give my ears a, a break. Huh. But um, there's a lot of, you know, pump and motor and fan mm-hmm. noise uh, in the space station. Some some spots, you know, louder than others. Our crew quarters are relatively quiet, but still, yeah. you know, there's still fan noise in, in there. From the fan that blows, you know, you need to circulate air in the in this yeah. enclosed space. Yeah, and I was interested that you said that it's uh, it's not that cramped. It no. wasn't that claustrophobic on the space station. Pretty roomy? Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of room. Mm-hmm. Soyuz is kind of small. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's actually not kind of small. It's actually yeah. very small. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look the Soyuz doesn't look that much different from the first rockets that we used. Yeah. It's uh, it's a <laughs> tiny, tiny capsule. capsule. Yeah. Now, do you think you'll ever go back up there? I'm sorry. Yeah, does your she, girlfriend over here agree? Yeah, my fiance. She fiance. She would. Uh, I think so. Yeah. She'd probably let me go. Do you want to go? <laughs> How about the first couple go. in space? Has that ever been done? <laughs> yeah, you could do all kinds of interesting experiments then. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Once more, it's called Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Captain Scott Kelly, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Captain Kelly for joining me on the podcast. Order his book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery on Amazon, or download the audiobook at audible.com. Keep up with Scott at scottkelly.com and follow him on Twitter at at station CDR Kelly. Today's episode was sponsored by Sonos. I was just telling you about my new Sonos speakers earlier in the episode, I come home from a long day, I pick up my phone, suddenly my living room is Carnegie Hall, and old blue eyes never sounded so good. Now that's what a true smart speaker is supposed to be. In fact, I like them so much, I've got them in my home and my office now. Sonos lets you have pulse-pounding sound in any room or every room at once. You can add your existing services or discover something new. Whether curated or on demand, free or subscription-based, Sonos has you covered with a growing list of music services. Better yet, Sonos's simple app lets you control everything from songs to volume to rooms all in one place. Sonos brings all your music together. To learn more, go to Sonos.com. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S.com. We're also sponsored by Nadex. Imagine if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front. That way you could try day trading the markets without worrying about the risk. Well, luckily you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at Nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. And please take a moment to take our listener survey at podsurvey.com kick so we can get to know who's listening and it's also helpful with our advertisers. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.